Vaxi's Musical Podcast. Sometimes in life, things don't always work out the way that we had hoped. Sometimes it takes a while for people to catch on to things that we've done or the things that we are the most proud of. When it comes to music, the greatest bands in the world are quite possibly the ones you've never heard of before. Some of the greatest music ever written was quite possibly never recorded or never distributed or never got played on the radio. Life and circumstances and bad luck sometimes intersect with each other and get in the way of greatness or the appreciation of that greatness. And sometimes it takes a few years for people to start to realize what they had missed. And sometimes there's a band like Big Star. My guest today is Jody Stevens. Jody Stevens was the drummer and is now the last surviving member of the band Big Star. The story of Big Star is one of the most interesting, enduring, frustrating, and infuriating stories in rock history. This is the band that started off in the early 70s with Alex Chilton, Chris Bell, Andy Hummel, and Jody Stevens. This was a band that was poised for greatness until it wasn't. Ask anyone who has heard their albums, number one record, Radio City, or the third Sister Lovers album, and you'll wonder how something this amazing, this wonderful, this perfect, didn't become the biggest damn thing in the world. What happened? Much of that was covered in the 2012 documentary Big Star, Nothing Can Hurt Me, or in several books, including the one by Rob Jovanovic. In short, Big Star fell victim to horrible luck, including the ineptitude of their record company, who had a chance to properly release their first two albums and blew it with one distribution blunder after another, the result of which led to Chris Bell and ultimately Andy Hummel leaving the band. And while their third album was considered to be a flawed masterpiece, it was the last-ditch effort for a band that was barely holding together. But this story isn't just about Big Star. The story is also about the place where Big Star recorded their records, Ardent Studios in Memphis. Ardent Studios was founded in 1966 by the late John Fry. This was the studio that either mixed, recorded, or engineered music from Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, ZZ Top, B.B. King, Cheap Trick, Isaac Hayes, Joe Walsh, Leonard Skinner, R.E.M., Stevie Ray Vaughan, and hundreds and hundreds more. And Jody Stevens is now the studio manager at Arden Studios in Memphis. He's not only busy in that position, he's also making his own music with his partner Luther Russell, the former lead singer and songwriter for the 90s band The Freewheelers. Jody and Luther have just released their second album as the band Those Pretty Wrongs. The album is called Zed for Zulu, and it's wonderful. So as you can tell, there's a lot of ground to cover with my guest today, Jody Stevens of Big Star on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, Mike. How are you, Jody? I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? Very good. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Wonderful. Hey, I I, uh, I, I want to just uh, say again how much I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I know you're busy. I know, uh, I assume that things at Arden Studios are always kind of busy, even even during a pandemic. Well, no, because we're, uh, we've spent a lot of the pandemic doing updates and stuff. But, you know, Keith Sykes, who's a pretty well-known songwriter, is the, uh, the president of, the, of uh, Arden these days, and he's done a lot of updates kind of personally doing himself and, and a lot of tech stuff and Pro Tools upgrade, all kinds of things. And we're kind of through that, but we we really haven't opened up. As a matter of fact, we were starting to reopen, and then, 
you know, cases started spiking again. And, right. and so right. I, I stopped booking projects. I'm not busy. <laughs> well, then I'm glad I caught you on a day off then. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for turning me on to uh, those pretty wrongs. I, I had I had heard your first album. Uh, I think it was back in 2016, and I heard you and Luther talking uh, to the guys from the Great Albums podcast about it when it came out. And I didn't even realize that, that there was a new album out there. But I've been listening to it in the last few days, and you know what strikes me about it very much like the first record. It's still a very intimate sounding record, and not so unlike what you might hear from a band. Oh, I don't know, uh, called Big Star. <laughs> there. There are some similarities in the in you know the softer songs of like number one record on the second side where you say ah oh, yeah no I can kind of hear I can kind of hear those chords I can kind of hear the the mood of it all it's a, it's a great record you should be very proud of it oh thank you so much well I had a lot of good teachers yes you did you did have a, a few people in your background how did, yeah how did you and Luther uh, get to know each other I know you have a, a a fairly long history together but how did how did the two of you meet we uh, well what I do for Arden, or, or certainly did back in the '90s a lot more. Now it was uh, we had a production company, and and we would develop local talent. And uh, then I then I I built up lots of connections, A and R connections. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd get on a plane uh, to New York three times a year in L.A. So, but at any rate, you know, Gary Gersh was one of my connections at Geffen on the West Coast, and Gary introduced me to Luther. Uh, back in '91, he also Gary also introduced me to John and Ken, so it was two. <laughs> when the uh, when Big Star yeah. reformed. So when you when you uh, when you got together, how did you decide that uh, you wanted to do something musically together? Well, we didn't at first. <clears throat> I, I you know we'd get together from time to time. One thing that really piqued my interest was Luther handed me the CD of his grandfather's songs, <laughs> Bob Russell, and uh, his his grandfather was a lyricist and he wrote, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Uh, he wrote for the love of Ivy with Quincy Jones. That was an either won an Academy award or was Academy award nomination nominee. And don't, I say don't get around much anymore. Oh, wow. I mean, all these pretty amazing, but anyway, <laughs> so that really kind of piqued my interest and we just stayed in touch. And then, um, when it, when the big star documentary, nothing can hurt me was being released i the uh, newer theater out in la asked me asked him if i'd sing some big star songs after the screening of the of the uh, movie and i said sure and then i enlisted luther uh <laughs> to come play guitar and because i knew he was i knew he had known the material uh <laughs> and then john hour happened to be out there so i mean that kind of got us playing together and we scheduled date with like kcrw with Ann Litt and, uh, you know, Amoeba Records and a bunch of other things. And then Luther said, why don't we write some songs together? And that's how that got started. I was watching uh, YouTube and the uh, the video of you at Amoeba, you know, the What's in the My Bag series. And, and one of the one of the records that you pulled out is kind of very much like what you guys have done, the Elliott Smith uh, CD that you, you pulled out. And, and there's some similarities between Elliott Smith and, uh, and, the, and the new record. But also of some of the big star stuff too, and 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 you said in the video that you had worked with Elliot Smith. Tell me what that was all about. Yeah, I did. I uh, well, I went to visit his A and R person, another connection through an A and R person, <laughs> and uh, he said, "Well, you know, Elliot's over at, at uh, Capital, 
doing some recording, and there are a couple of songs that he can't. He plays drums himself, and but he he really hasn't come up with anything. You're interested in in sitting in, and I said, well, sure. And so they they had some drumsticks. Boy, that's it's the power of a major label. They had some drumsticks <laughs> picked up for me, and and I and I wear gloves, drum gloves, and. So some of those picked up and delivered to the studio, and I drove over to Capitol, and it was just an amazing experience being in Capitol Studio. I've been in the building several times, but but never in the studio. So, yeah, that wow. it, I, he he didn't use the tracks I played on, but it was still, you know, fun getting to record with Elliot. I love Elliot Smith's music. I think he's one of those guys where, in very much the same way as the big star, he may not be a household name, but his music is one of those things where if you know it, you'll absolutely love it. It's, it's like an infectious disease. <laughs> you, may not really, you may not realize how badly you want it until you got it, and then it, it, you never shake it. Yeah. I mean, Elliot and, and Alex could, were, were great at delivering melancholy vocals. That's, that's for damn sure. When you and I uh, spoke the other day, um, we're, we're talking about the legacy of Big Star. And uh, you seem to be, uh, you know, like genuinely, I don't know if surprised is, is the right word, but, you know, certainly grateful that this music that, that's now 50 years old when it comes to like the, the first record and, and, and Radio City, the fact that this music has kept growing over time for a band that, that really got lost in, in a lot of, Bad decisions, bad distribution, a lot of you know, a lot of problems with the band. Are are you surprised by the way the legacy of Big Star has grown over the years? Well, yes and and no. I mean, one aspect of it is when we finished number one record and I heard the mixes. I mean, I was excited all the way through the process of making that record. I just it was so thrilling to be a part of that, but. At the end of the day, when I held that record in my hand, I thought I'm, I was so proud of it, and but I had no expectations outside of that because I thought that was all kind of pie in the sky sort of stuff, thinking you could make a career out of music. Right. I mean, you know, I love the Beatles and all that, but I, I, uh, I thought, well, you know, we're here in Memphis. What can we do? Uh, I mean, you know, hell, even though the box tops had the number one hit in the country and stuff. Uh, but anyway, so... But on the other hand, I uh, I was so proud of it. It's you know you like to think that you share taste, uh, common taste with with lots of people. And, and given that, as, as proud as I was of it, I, I figured you know a lot of other people would really like it. So in that respect, maybe I'm not so surprised. I assume that all four of you and, and you know Andy, Chris, and and uh, and, uh, and Alex, when when the first record was complete. You all had to feel a sense of pride of, uh, about it. I mean, I, I saw the documentary, and it was you know it was very clear that what you had accomplished on on number one record was something pretty special. I think everybody within the band and and John Fry realized this was something kind of unusual for 1972. Wh- what is the, the feeling of of having this record and now waiting to see what happens with it? I mean, was there a, a great amount of anticipation? You know, before you realize that there may have been a, a problem with Stacks distributing this record, I uh, I think so. You know, writers, uh, music writers, and uh, folks like yourself, but of course we didn't have podcasts. But, uh, <laughs> really liked the band, 
And so it, it, it raised our expectations. The response was, was wonderful uh, to it. Radio stations would add it to their playlist. John King, who was the promotions guy here at Arden, he was, God, he was brilliant at it. You know, got it in the hands of everybody that, that needed to have it and got them to listen to it. You know, there were expectations, but then we started hearing about problems of, I live in wherever city and I, I can't find the record. Uh, can you, can, could I buy a copy direct from Arden? And so then we, we knew there were problems. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate. I think Al Bell had worked out a great deal with Clive Davis uh, for distributing Stax Records. And that could have really worked nicely. But shortly after the deal, Clive was let go from, from Columbia for right. whatever reason. And uh, so it, no, one, no one else at Columbia wanted to carry on that relationship, really. So that's, that's what failed with distribution, I think. It's interesting. I didn't, I didn't hear Big Star uh, up until the 1980s. You know, it was a band that I had heard of, and yeah, it was in college radio at the time, and, and you know, we had a few Alex Chilton records in the collection at that radio station, but then all of a sudden the replacements come out with the, with the song Alex Chilton, and, and, they're, and they're citing Big Star as a huge influence, and then so does REM and Teenage Fan Club comes out a few years later, and they're all citing our, all citing Big Star as a uh, as a major influence. And I remember hearing the music for the very first time, and I remember the exact feeling I had. There was on one hand, I was like, I absolutely adore this music, and on the other hand, I was feeling almost sad that it's take that it had taken until 1985, 86 for me to hear my favorite records of all time, and then to realize they've been out for 16 years. As a, as a listener, as a consumer of music, there was something kind of distressing about that to the point where you wonder, well, how much other great music and wonderful bands have there been to have you know, suffered the same fate? Big Star's got a, 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 an amazing story behind it, but you, know, you wonder, well, how many other Big Stars have there been? There had to have been other bands that recorded wonderful music, but it, it never got heard. It never got into the hands of, uh, of people. I, I mean, do you see it in that way? Like it couldn't have just been us. Yeah, I guess that, that we'll never know for sure. It is hindsight. And I, and I understand that, but it's like you hear stories about, you know, record companies, some get it and some, and some don't like, they don't really always know what they're supposed to do with the music or the product that they have. And then you hear these stories about how they just didn't give a band the attention and, and love that they deserved. And then this music goes unheard. And it just, I, I have, a, I, I know there are other examples of, of this happening. And I wonder, did you guys feel like it was personal? Because it was, it's, it, it's not just the first record, it's the second record right. too. Yeah, I don't think it was personal. Again, it's, it's a relationship that went sour between Columbia and, and Stax. And consequently, there was no real distribution outlet for us and for Arden Records to get it where it needed to be. A while back, I spoke to uh, my friend Cheryl Pavelski from Omnivore Recordings, and, and, and she and I went to college together. We've known each other for probably since the very day I discovered Big Star's music. And she's done a, a, a remarkable job restoring that catalog and then reintroducing it to people who might not have heard it the first time around or the second time around when the first two albums were combined on 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 CD 
How do you feel about the uh, the work that Omnivore has done to keep that music going? I'm thankful for Cheryl Pavelski. She was one of those people, and and maybe one of the others is Daniel McCarthy, who who instigated the Big Star documentary. Nothing can hurt me. Both of those things helped help people get turned on to, to, to Big Star in a huge way. And if you look at the presentation of those two, the, 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 the box set that Cheryl did and then the documentary, if we had had that level of sort of representation back in the 70s, you know, we would have had a great opportunity to connect with a lot more people. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm so grateful that Cheryl came along and, and uh, kind of helped grow this audience. In large part, because one, I, I, I love having Cheryl as a friend. And two, I mean, it's allowed us to keep playing. I mean, we're doing Mike, well, at least so far, Mike, Mike Mills and Brett Harris and Chris Stamey and I are, are going to do a couple of concerts, one in New York City and one in Brooklyn in November. Oh, wow. Um, with, with a string quartet. It's going to be, you know, like songs of Big Star. It'll be acoustic. Um, so I just, and I'd love to play and, and I'd, I'd love to get out and see the world. It has a tremendous amount of value to me and, and God, the, the quality of living, <laughs> I, maybe, maybe I'm getting too deep, but it's, it's true. Well, I think the thing that, that, that Cheryl is so good at is that she, I think she understands history almost as much as she understands music. And I think she she knows how to put things into a perspective of where these records and these artists fall in the scope of all recorded uh, music. And I think that's really important. You, I mean, I think you you see, you know, how much care and attention to detail is brought to every single project. And 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 Big Star is is no exception to that at all. In fact, I think you know because she's such a big fan, the what she did with Chris Bell's music, I thought was absolutely wonderful to hear all of his solo work put together in 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 that way and even uh she's just released a a set of alex chilton uh, live in on beale street which is maybe one of the most joyful happy sounding performances i've ever heard uh alex chilton do it's it, it, it's it's remarkably well done the way she has you know embraced the music of big star over the years indeed i agree with you I, uh, you know, and I've yet to listen to that record, uh, which reminds me, I'll put it on my listen list. <laughs> well, I think every, the, the very first time I heard Alex do uh, Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band, I knew it was for something interesting. But then to hear it live and to hear him have fun it was, was great. I want to ask you about Alex a little bit here, because one of the things I find really interesting about Alex Chilton's career, his solo career, uh, in particular, it seemed like after the third album, and and things were kind of you know barely holding on with like Scotch tape and Velcro, that he really seemed to want to distance himself from the whole thing, and not be so much of a pop star, but really just express himself artistically and and you know let the chips fall where they may. Did you feel like he was trying to distance himself from all of that due to the experience, or was it something different? If that's a multiple choice, I'd say all of the above, uh, primarily because, you know, I'd hear an interview that he would do, and he would say something that, uh, like there was one comment, he said, you know, there's this band called Big Star, you should, you should, you should have a listen, it turns some heads. And then there, there are other things that I would hear that 
you know, we're more more in line with. I'd rather put this in my past, and and uh, which you know can't blame him. I'm sure he'd like to talk about what he's doing currently. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no reflection on this. I yeah, hell, I love talking about big stars. It's fine. Alex was predictably unpredictable. So any given moment, his response to similar questions can be can be opposite each other, and maybe for good reason. So when you guys reformed again in 1993, was it a tough sell for Alex to get involved? Or, uh, or how, how did that all occur, considering how hard he was trying to not turn his back on it, but to, to certainly step away from what Big Star was all about? Well, I hadn't seen Alex in a while. You know, he's living in New Orleans. Mike Mulvihill called me, and uh, two guys, Mike Mulvihill and Jeff Breeze. And they were on the committee at uh, for the Spring Fest at the University of uh, Missouri, or hopefully I've got that right. And they asked if I would, uh, you know, join Alex and play some Big Star songs. And I said, sure, just um, call Alex. I don't have his phone number, but, you know, get in touch with him. If he'll do it, I'm glad to do it. And so I, they found his phone number, and they called him, and I think he said, well, I'm not doing anything else that day. Um, and it, it didn't seem like much of a, his joining didn't seem like much of a problem. He was glad to do it. I don't, yeah, he, let me correct that. He agreed to do it. <laughs> I, hate to put, I hate to put emotion and, and uh, suggest emotions for Alex, but um, yeah, he agreed to do it, and uh and then so Jeff and and then Mike went went about trying to find two other people to join us to do those songs, and they weren't really nobody was available on their list. I said, "Well, call, call John Auer and Ken Stringfellow," and uh, really John Auer because I didn't know Ken played bass, and they did. And John said, "Yeah," and Ken goes, "Wait, wait, wait! I play bass. I play bass." So. <laughs> That's how they joined. It's you know again through that connection with, with Gary Gersh Geffen and things. You know, kind of if you just walk through this world and and you're not a jerk, you make some really fine friends out there. And I was lucky that I ran into John and Ken. When you're playing this music a- after all this time, and I know you guys didn't necessarily perform a whole heck of a lot, uh, you know, in those earlier days, but when you're playing this music after. 40 years have passed or, you know, 30 years have passed or whatever it wound up being. And the reaction of, of people, your fans who are hearing you guys perform this music for the very first time as a guy who was involved in, in, in the band, what did it mean to you guys to see the reaction people were having? I thought it was pretty amazing. You know, at the uh, spring fest in Columbia, there was this one guy who stood about a foot taller than most of the people in the audience. And he had this, gigantic smile on his face through the whole set. And it was just, uh, it was a fine feeling looking at that. It, it kind of reassured me that people were there to, to enjoy the moment as opposed to critique it. Because, you know, hell, I hadn't played in two and a half years prior to that. Uh, it had been a while. So I was, you know, I was, I was nervous. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I did do some woodshedding and, and practicing and stuff. To get there, but it was I was still kind of nervous, and uh, his that guy's face and a lot of faces in the audience were reassuring. But uh, the cool thing about that nervous, I think we were all nervous, and it shows in that performance. But it was a the outcome of being nervous was a positive outcome. I think there was a really kind of cool energy to that performance. I, I would I would think it would it have to be in, in in many ways just overwhelming because. 
again, it's a it was a, a building legacy that all of a sudden now it's 1993, 1994, and you're finally getting recognized for the the, the brilliance of these of these three records, and and people are finally getting to hear it, and, and I would imagine that it had to be just overwhelming to be a part of that. It was overwhelming. I mean, we all had this, you know, a lot of people referred it to it. As, I mean, the, this cult sort of uh, community as uh, being part of one that, you know, has a little secret handshake and that's, and that's <laughs> big star. Uh, and that's what it remained for a long time. It was, it was so cool to be a part of this community where we all had this thing in common. That was, uh, you know, the music, big stars music. And, um, I don't know. We, we got a lot of mileage out of that from, you know, do, releasing that record. And we played five day, four dates in Eng- in the UK and one in, in, in Holland and, uh, in 93. And then we went to Japan the next year, and did five dates and we've been kind of all over the world. So it's, uh, it is. It's. It is kind of overwhelming when I think about it. I try not to think about it too much because I get nervous. Because <laughs> I've got. Then all of a sudden I have to live up to something, and uh, I'd rather just enjoy doing it than than trying to live up to something. One of the uh, the things that you you certainly saw it in the documentary, and and certainly you see all of it on the uh, the the Rob uh, Jovanovic book about Big Star is the importance of of the studio Arden Studios. And you know, the more you read about what Ardent is all about and all the incredible music that's been recorded or engineered or mixed in that building and in its, in its uh, your previous location, you realize there's something very special about those studios. As, as the guy who's now in charge of it, what is it about Ardent Studios that, that makes it so important to musical history? Because, I mean, you're talking about it, an amazing lineup of work. That's that's happened over the last fifty-five years. It really is amazing. I mean, John Fry kind of coined the phrase, you know, you you know something kind of magical can happen at Arden because it has. And early on, and oh, just to clarify, I don't. Keith Sykes runs Arden. He's our president, and and uh, you know he's a fantastic songwriter and performer, and played with Jimmy Buffett and co-wrote a few songs with Buffett and John Prine. But anyway, Keith runs it. <laughs> And I help run it. So initially, it's John Fry's relationship with Al Bell. And, you know, John Fry started writing when he was 14, along with Fred Smith, who wound up starting FedEx, and John King, who was the brilliant promo guy. And uh, so John instilled confidence from an early age uh, and so and built this relationship with Stax. And, and he added Terry Manning on, and Terry was good at building relationships. Like Terry had met Paige when Paige was in the Yardbirds, and hence Paige came to to mix with Terry, mix uh, Led Zeppelin three, and then uh, Terry approached the ZZ Top guys, and they wound up doing eight records, seven or eight records here, and uh, uh, and God, that was they're such an incredible part of Arden's history. Yeah, um, as as a lot of things, Terry mixed the Staple Singers records. They were cut down on Muscle Muscle Shoals, and you know those were huge records. Uh, a lot of I mean, it's just kind of building over the years. James Taylor came to to work with the Memphis Horns on Mudslide Slim when we were at the old studio. 
on national, but it's just building this clientele. And I'm sure I, you know, Terry's working with, with the staple singers was an incredible calling card for page. And, uh, cause you know, they're all page and, and a lot of folks are Stax fans and, uh, they, and then, you know, it, it, Terry works with ZZ top and that's another pretty amazing calling card to say you can work, you've worked with Led Zeppelin and ZZ top and, 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 John brought on, you know, Richard Roseborough was an engineer here, and, uh, you know, he wound up playing on Chris's solo records. I played on some tracks, but Richard was really the kind of, added that sort of profound soul to it. And then John Hampton comes along, and John winds up producing the Gin Blossoms uh, records here at Arden. And Joe Hardy, Life is a Highway, and, and Joe Hardy picked up on the ZZ Top thing, and Joe was brilliant. Um, so it was just kind of, you just keep building as long as you, and it's all based on the talents and skills of John Fry, because there were no recording schools. It was, John Fry was such an amazing mentor to hundreds of people in terms of, uh, how did you learn to record? Well, a lot of folks learned under John Fry, who was brilliant. And he just did it from t- picking up books. You hear some of these these records that you're talking about, and 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 these are among some of the greatest records that have ever been recorded. I, he he knew the relationship the relationship of sound, I guess, but it was just all done through experience. Because at 14, you know, technology at that point was was fairly simple, and it just kind of kept building. So he was he was in step with with the evolution of technology and state and step. But he, but he also had this amazing set of ears, but amazing understanding of the relationship of sound and, and the relationship of all this outboard gear and how it affects things. And did he create some things? Yes. Uh, he, he did, I think, a bunch of stuff that was unconventional. It's it's amazing to me because you know at, at, when I was fourteen years old, I, I I couldn't figure out how to run a VCR. I couldn't 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 figure out any any of this kind of stuff. So to me, it's like you know how much of a genius is this guy at fourteen years old to understand the relationship between all of these electronics and then turn it into you know something amazing within the next you know four to five years of his life. It really is. It's phenomenal. Because uh, he recorded bands at his parents' house, they had a, they had a proper space for it. It was a garage, but it had been it had been remodeled into a proper space. So he and he recorded bands there for about six years, and then they sold the house and they figured, you know, he's pretty serious about it. So they rented a space on National, and he was there from '66 to November of '71, and then he built this building from scratch to be a studio and and to have some office space in it. So how did you get back into to Ardent? I mean, how how long have you been there, and, and how did you transition your way back you know, into it? Well, I started on the business side of things January 12, 1987. And how I got here was I uh, finished at University of Memphis. My major was marketing. And so I had this music background, having been in Big Star, and this great relationship with John Fry, but I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. So around November of 86, I was handing out resumes to folks. And one was at a radio station uh, for a sales position there. And um, so I, I, I called John to see if I could use him as a reference. 
And he said, sure, I'll be glad to say something nice about you. And and uh, I think we hung up, but he called me back shortly after. He said, wait a minute, we've got this marketing position that we're, uh, that we're creating here at Ardent. Why don't you come interview for it? Wow. And I did. And I interviewed with a guy named Joe Dyer, who was actually head of the Ardent had a teleproductions department then. And it was a you know, it was a coat and tie department because they work with corporate folks. Uh, so I wore a coat and tie to the meeting, and and I, I think we they, we we had two or three interviews. And at the end of the day, I don't think he wanted to hire me, but but John overruled him <laughs> and uh, wound up hiring me. And and so I was kind of off and running. He wanted it was marketing, and we had a production company too, and uh, so it was you know, again, developing local talent. And then I could take that and use it as a tool to introduce people to the studios that that didn't know about them, which Orton already had a reputation by then. And, and you know, local Memphis talent and also the talents of our, of John Hampton and Joe Hardy. And, and I, you know, it, it, I didn't really represent Jim Dickinson, but I'd certainly say kind of really nice things about him. And, uh, so I had all these wonderful people that I could name drop in these meetings and these these great demos that I could play for them that kind of represented what we could do as a studio. Even, you know, in regard to maybe one of the artists that they that label has and, and they need a place to record. I don't know. John Kilzer was our first artist and I got him signed to Geffen and then there was Tor Tor at A&M and uh, probably the last band I... I Pitched was Skillet and uh, to um, to uh, I'm drawing a bl- Atlantic, but it was really Andy. It was Andy Carp, and uh, I'd played several Skillet records for him. And then there was this record I think it was Collide, and he w- he wound up signing Skillet to Atlantic, and they kind of took off from there. It's just amazing to me when uh, you look at the list, even the even the short list on the Ardent website by by decade. You know, you have all these stacks artists and. You know, Stevie Ray Vaughan and George Thorogood and Bob Dylan and Joe Walsh. I mean, the list is is endless. And when you when you realize what you guys have accomplished, I mean, most people, you know, look at a, you know, they get a record, they listen to the songs, but they have no idea what went into the creation of that or where it all came from. And then you realize, oh, my gosh, all this stuff came from one place in Memphis, Tennessee. And you realize there's got to be something pretty special about not only the building, but the people who work who work there and who, who run it. And what you're saying does it explains exactly that. It is. A, yeah. It's really, of course, you know, it's, it is a special place. The gear we have here is we have some incredible vintage gear, but I mean, John's always been kind of a state of the art guy as much as he could be. So, and he, he's always kept all the gear in, in great working order. And it's a, it's a really wonderful building to walk into because we have this amazing courtyard that I've been walking around in. It's completely enclosed in glass, and there's a fountain, and it's just, you know, you, it, you don't feel like you're cooped up inside a building all day, yeah. <laughs> even though you're in a, in a climate-controlled environment. <laughs> See, I, uh, and, that's, and that's the difference between guys like, like you know, the, the John Fries of the world and guys like me. The first time something breaks, well, that's it. We're done here. Time to close the place up and never reopen. Yeah, but then I mean, w- once you achieve a certain level of quality and 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 you know the building and the gear that you offer, then it 
it's certainly all about talent. Yeah. And uh, and that's certainly what I discovered in, in talking to A&R folks. And it's, they're, they're pretty much more interested in the talent, engineering and production talent than you have, that you have uh, more so than the studio. Um, I mean, although we, you know, we did have like REM came uh, for Ardent and because I'd I, uh, I was actually in Nashville on business and, and found out they were, they were recording in Nashville and went and met them. And so I was lucky to have established that relationship. I knew Mike and Peter had said some nice things. So, But they brought their own engineer. And, and there, are, there are bands that from time to time that do that. And they come for Ardent. And, and you know, it's, guy you walk through Ardent stores and you have this amazing sense of purpose about what you need to do. Well, Jody, it's a real pleasure to talk to you again. The the, the name of the uh, the new record by Those Pretty Wrongs is Zed for Zulu. It is excellent, and I do appreciate the time today. So thank you so, so much. Sure. Thanks. I appreciate the interest. You bet. Thank you, Jody. You can check out the new album from Those Pretty Wrongs by Jody Stevens and Luther Russell called Zed for Zulu. It's available now on Burger Records. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, share it, rate it, follow along on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Spotify. You can also email me at backtorock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.